Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to L Inkstained Arechos where we break down what's going wrong and, in fact, what is going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, let me tell you something. I'm, I'm on a fashion journey, and it's the most dad energy I think I've ever really exuded, which is to find the golf shirt that means the most to me, to find the polo shirt that I care about the most, and it's become, I won't say it's a consuming passion, but as you can see today, if you, if you were sub- watching this on our YouTube channel, you would already know. If you were subscribed to High L Retro's, our newsletter, you, would, you could click the link. But finding for a, when I was a boy, I had to shop in what they called the Husky department. Was that a thing? Yeah, Husky is like, we don't want to say that your child is fat, but maybe these tough skins over here will be a better fit for him than these. But looking for something in the double XL size that is flattering and comfortable for golf or for podcast recording. So I finally have like made a commitment because my polo collection had gotten to a place I was not satisfied with. And I'm really pleased with this today. This is a Holderness and Born. I don't know. I don't know what the real name is. I, I will probably find out from a reader that it's made in a Laotian sweatshop, but, and they've just adopted that name. But I've, I've been on a journey, so I just want you to know you're not the only one who cares about fashion. I was thinking that I really like the look and that you look like you should be, like, walking off the golf course the right line, now. You look like you belong at a the country li- club. The line from Caddyshack, of course, is, what did you just step out of a scotch ad? Is what Spalding says to Danny Noonan, and I, I'm not. I'm not getting Scotch vibes. I'm getting. I'm getting Cl- country, country club, club yeah. vibes. Bushwood. It's Caddy yes. Day. Bushwood. Yes. folks. That's right. I have a major, major fashion update. I did some field research. Oh yes. After we had, the, I said that my favorite item from maybe two weeks ago was this huge New York Magazine spread on an expose. Uh, yes, it was an expose on. Well, an expose for some, a, <laughs> a roadmap for, for others, yes. <laughs> depending on who you are, on the replica hand luxury handbag market in China. And I will say figuring out this market is is somewhat challenging. You have to get on Reddit and then Reddit has these guides to how you contact these people I'm in sorry, China. What? Swear, I swear, I did all of this. Are you on like 4chan yes, now? Okay. Yes. You're on and the WeChat dark web. And all these things. And you, you basically have to find an intermediary in China who I then knows I want to let anybody at the FBI know that yeah, I which, did not know about this in to advance. Go to, yeah. They, they, like they, these intermediaries procure the goods for you, send you photos for approval, and oh then ship gosh. them for you. But... Reddit has a guide to like which of them are trustworthy, which of them aren't. Anyhow, well, I said the, I'm, I'm ordering see, yeah. one handbag for okay. you know samples, and they're all replicas of these designer bags at a fra- literally about one ninth the cost. Let's see the okay. bag. We want to see I have the, bag. the bag. I have. Okay, the bag. what is this a replica of? It's 
I think the brand is pronounced Loewe. L O E W E. Okay. And it's hilarious. It comes with fake tags, like the logo here. It's an a actual medium sized white purse. Yes. An actual tag here. It, if you put me to the test, because I had just been in the store in how much is it? Miami, well, how much would the real one cost? Retails, I think, for nineteen ninety. One thousand nine hundred. One thousand nine hundred ninety. I paid two hundred and fifty-three or fifty-four dollars, and then maybe forty-eight or forty-nine dollars for shipping. Well, your remaining time as a free person before you are yes. arrested. <laughs> yes. You, well, I'll tell you what. Um, like, re- like Elizabeth Holmes, you'll go to jail fashionably. A pretty damn good replica. <laughs> it's pretty. I don't think I could tell the difference. So this is not like the guy selling Rolexes. It's not on like the, the carts in New York. Yeah, no. Okay. No, I, I don't think I could tell the difference. So anyhow, I will I will keep you all posted. <laughs> but but it's not the type of thing where, you know, you could just start Googling and figure it out. It, it takes some time. You've to got to be prepared to cross some boundaries that you out. may not have been ready to yes, originally. It t- takes some time. Hopefully we'll get a picture of Eliana with the bag to put in high out retros. Take some time. Okay. All right, Chris. Anyhow. We, you know, people like me, we have to be, oh, oh, sorry, I was going to jump to the debt ceiling, but you suggested we start. Today we're recording this on June 1st. What would we have on the front page except for? With Pride Month. Pride Wars. How times have changed. A year ago, we were laughing about how corporate and lame that Pride Month had become. And last week, if you'll recall, we had a joke item from The Onion about how a person's ad- J.K. Rowling was transformed in her views on the trans community because she got a free frisbee from Citibank's Pride Parade Pride Parade float in Cincinnati, and the corporatization and and how goofy all that was. One year later, the coverage of Pride Month and these issues is a very sharp, very pointed political story. Discuss. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. I will say, I just try to mostly ignore all of this stuff. So there is, but there is a good story in Semaphore. Dave Weigel. From Dave Weigel that, that is pretty accurate. He The headline is, Pride Month is a war, brands are the battlefield. The My, number one number one song on Apple Music was a I don't I'm we have an intern here and I'm going to apologize for using this phrase because I may be dating myself to an even more extreme degree than I wanted but a gangster rapper kind of gangster rapper uh, who has a whole anti Pride Month rap that became a it's true that became a sensation on the right side of the internet and that. This is the, you had Bud Light and then on to now Target and now even Chick-fil-A. And I found the Chick-fil-A component very interesting. How long ago was the anti-Chick-fil-A movement on the left? Was that 10 years ago? I think that's about right. Seven to 10 years ago. And if and if you'll recall, what happened was Dan Cathy had been a supporter of Proposition 8 in California. And by the way, which passed, but Dan Cathy had supported anti-same-sex marriage initiatives. And the it's, it's hard for people to remember the intensity of the anti-Chick-fil-A boycott and how much attention it got. I remember when the first Chick-fil-A came to Manhattan that there was a whole 
egg sucker of a piece in the New Yorker about like bringing these alien values into, you know, the sandwich is good, but the values are, you know, are suspect and not welcome here on this island. And at the time, there was a big, that's how Chick-fil-A branded to being a right-wing food, right? And Chick-fil-A went from a southern regional thing to a right-wing thing. And then— And I think the other part of it was that they're closed on Sundays. They were open about being a Christian company. And they were very open about training their employees to be incredibly polite. And they are. And they are. And every Chick-fil-A is clean. People are helpful and nice in the Chick-fil-A and the quality of the—so— not to, not to go back to the Burger King, our, our Burger King episodes, the Burger, the Burger King era of ink-stained wretches. But Burger King, you're rolling the dice, baby. You get out there. Is this going to be a good Burger King or will, or, will, or will rats be selling heroin to each other under a table in the back? <laughs> you don't know, right? It's a Bur- Burger King, there's, there's a wide variability. I got to say, I had McDonald's for the first time. Sorry to take us on this detour. No. I had McDonald's for the first time in a long time at, at an airport and I also gave it to my daughter for the first time. Right. So good. Yeah. So good. <laughs> I- yeah. So good. We, and it was hilarious to watch a baby, basically. What did um, she get? I gave her both chicken nuggets and cheeseburger. You know, we got all the options. But she freaking loved them both. Yeah, because they're delicious. Delicious. That's, that's delicious. right. That's right. That's delicious. And she's like, mo, 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 mo. <laughs> that's the like the Jim Gaffigan bit. The cops like donuts. You know who else like donuts? Everyone. Everybody yeah. likes donuts because yeah. they're delicious. But so Chick-fil-A became a cultural touchstone. And a way for people on the right to signify, like, yeah, and it's Chick-fil-A, man. Kevin McCarthy very famously used to hand, give out Chick-fil-A as part of his cajoling efforts as the Republican whip. Now, the effort to politicize Chick-fil-A is coming from the right because Chick-fil-A is, well, here's the piece from Fox Business, Business, is Chick-fil-A gets heat from Twitter users over DEI. And I want to call this the McCreesh rule. Okay. If you will accept, and if if anybody listened to the Sean McCreesh episode, is no one takes to Twitter, right. takes to social media, so-and-so takes to social media. And my rule is, if your article is based on posts, especially it's randos posting on social media, it's not a real story. No. You, have not, you have not gotten a real story. But anyway, on Tuesday, the fired up social media users leveled accusations of wokeness in quotes, against Chick-fil-A and suggested boycott of the company known for its chicken sandwiches. They did so while pointing to Chick-fil-A's diversity, equity, and inclusion webpage as the reason why. Some mentioned the company's vice president of DEI, Eric McReynolds, longtime Chick-fil-A employee, has had a DEI leadership role since mid-2021. Anyway, Chick-fil-A does not have a Pride Month. Chick-fil-A is not celebrating Pride Month. The complaint about Chick-fil-A is that it has a DEI at all. Right. And that it states on its website that it wants to be inclusive and be a a nice place for people to work. And my thought was in seeing all of this and I wish I would have included it. I'll try to find it to send it to CC is the piece about I think it may have been The New York Times talking about how DEI, which just two years ago was like. We're now living in the age of DEI. The way that we will, res- the way that everybody's going to respond to the concerns and pressures around the Black Lives Matter movement, around the 
the long vaunted national conversation on race. You remember when Obama used to say we're going to have we need a national conversation on race? Turns out we we did not. We did not do very well with it. But for corporations, DEI was the place to hide, right? Okay, well, we're going to how are we going to answer this? We're going to set up a DEI like another layer of human resources is DEI. And the verdict over time now is as Target has found out, as everyone is finding out, when the right is mobilized, it's they're going to make you pay a price too. The Chick-fil-A thing really struck me as downstream from or akin to the Bud Light thing, which is oh, yeah. you don't know your customer base. And I am, I don't it's, think. It's not as in your face as the Bud Light thing, but it is. Chick-fil-A has to have, they can't, Chick-fil-A, I mean, I assume that there are legal, reasons of legal defense and... Okay, sure. I could come up with a defense for it too, but you know as well as I do, there are a million ways around these things. And the Chick-fil-A, DEI for the right, for the Bud Light drinkers and the standard person who goes through Chick-fil-A has come to mean something that it didn't exactly mean. And we talked 10 about this ago. last week. And it's interesting Fox Business is doing the story because it was last week that the Heritage Foundation was attacking Fox for not policing. And remember this one the clothes, not checking the clothes, making sure that people were wearing the clothes <laughs> that aligned. And what would we say about you today? What's the wretch's policy on gender alignment wardrobe? No, no. You're wearing what is a sort of a, a, a men's shirt. I'm not sure whether, you know, we should check your birth certificate to see if that is the correct shirt for you. I think it was also not checking the privates before of the going into the bathroom. Yeah, the bathrooms are unpoliced. No, nobody's, nobody, yeah. nobody's checking which bathroom people are using. So exactly. I certainly agree that on the American right, the letters DEI have come to be like CRT, right? Where it's a, a buzz phrase and all of that and stuff. And we're going to hear soon from the left. DEI? This doesn't exist. It doesn't mean anything. Well, I think it was last week we talked about the new letter. What was the new letter that they were adding to it? DEI and belongingness or right. sense of worth or whatever, unicorn journey that, that, that it's expanding on one side. And the, the truth is, of course, for companies. So let's say if we date the Chick-fil-A wars, the Chick-fil-A boycott from the left, if we say that was 10 years ago, so the right has learned to imitate the tactics and politicize their beer choices in those ways, too, and to avenge these slights. And what you're seeing with Chick-fil-A, what you're seeing with other places, you're exactly right, is having succeeded in driving down Bud Light sales. By the way, maybe somebody just tried another beer and realized that Bud Light is terrible. Maybe the, part of this may be that someone's like, why have I been drinking this like incredibly bad beer for so long when it is so awful? Have you tried another light beer? I'm not a big beer drinker. Okay, so, all right, so. okay, okay. But the now the message to corporate America is the same one that they will always come back to, which is stay out of politics to the, any degree possible right? To whatever degree possible that you can. And if you want to get really, if, if, if you'll just indulge me before you hit the buzzer, I hope we got to get you a buzzer so you can just start. Oh my gosh, that would be 
and, um, and a countdown clock. Just to go back in history, General Electric Corporation and its use of Ronald Reagan, former actor, former head of the Screen Actors Guild, to travel the country and espouse a worldview, right? And to talk about, so they were political, not just political, they were ideological, and it became enmeshed in what was then one of the largest employers in America, hundreds of thousands of employees, and they would have Reagan go around the country, and they had this component to it, and ultimately they had to give it up because it it caused too much friction and it brought them under fire from the Johnson and Kennedy administrations and da 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 da. But the lesson throughout time for these companies is if you get into politics, it looks good when you're when you're dipping your toe in. And I don't know where, where you fall on the question of Target, your hometown. Do you have pro are you did you grow up with good feelings about Target and its delicious popcorn? Neutral on the popcorn. Okay. Neutral on Target. Neutral on Target. Meh. There's no, like, home state pride around no, Target? Not for me. But I don't really have home state pride. Oh, that's true. You know, people, they love being from Minnesota. I know. Well, they it's lovely. Love it. It's lovely. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. The, the, I have such warm feelings about the state. The, ca- the category, the, this is the, the hit list for you, for sure. How, what do you think of your home state? Nah, whatever. It's, okay. it's fine. Pe- some people it's like okay. it. It's whatever. Yeah. But, but people just love it. They do love they it. They will tell you all about it. Well, oh, yeah, you betcha. It's great. But so Target, I'll shut up after this, I promise. Encouraged by the press over the past five years, companies got more and more pride forward. And I think there is an interesting point. And actually, Weigel touches on this in his piece, and I've seen it other places. When you give up your political movement to corporations, when what you have as a, as a political or activist movement, as the pride movement was, born out of the Stonewall riots, born out of that battle, right, when you outsource that to Citibank, when you when you give that over to Target and it becomes a brand component, you lose control over it and it gets watered down and it isn't what you wanted it to be. And this is something Christians will recognize with Christmas and Easter where they lost control of something that was important to them. And I think this was a, a good and healthy time for for people to take care of their own politics and not cede them to brands. No. No. <laughs> no. Where are the LGBTQ plus activists complaining that their cause has been co-opted by corporations? I don't hear a lot of complaints. It's I they're, they're out there. And I will, and I will, sh- I will share evidence with you, but I have seen mm-hmm. this. I, and in Weigel's piece also touches on it. But it's the the problem of a sanitized, branded. That's what that onion piece was about. That was the joke in the onion piece. Of course, the onion makes a joke right. of it. But I don't hear a lot of Democrats. I hear them complaining about the people complaining. Right. About- oh, no, no, no. That's that. That is by by far the most. But I think if you were to. For example, if you were to talk to Andrew Sullivan, for example. Okay, I don't think he's a real good exemplar of, you know, the political left today. I was not I was not making a blanket statement but, about what the dominant culture says, but I am saying that what I observe and that there are a few voices who inside the gay and lesbian community yes. who have echoed few, that same sentiment. A few. Okay, that's ceiling. Do it. Bill the bill passed the house last night. Yes. 
by overwhelming margins in both parties. 149 Republicans and 165 Democrats backed the measures. 71 Republicans opposed it. 46 Democrats opposed it. At every step along the way, first of all, the White House's opening position, their position all along was, we're not negotiating. We're not negotiating with terrorists. We're not sitting down. Well, they did sit down. They did negotiate. And so by any measure, I think this was, you know, McCarthy succeeded in essentially uniting. He did unite Republicans behind a bill and he got the White House to sit sit down. Basically a success for him. Yeah. Didn't get everything he wanted, but basically a success. Reading the press coverage all along was constantly, can McCarthy keep his speakership through all of this? It was really striking. It was like the press was covering something completely different. And up until, you know, two hours before, hours before the vote yesterday, the New York Times, the New York Times headline was... Can McCarthy pass the debt deal yes. and keep his job? Can McCarthy pass the debt bill and keep his job? Matt Gates was out there saying he's not going to lose the speakership. So sort of confusing. And the Times piece, the New York Times piece this morning, which I'm going to link right now, says that the vote, which got the vast majority of Republicans behind it, was, quote, a blow to the Republican speaker whose hard-fought victory on the measure was dampened by the fact that more Democrats ultimately voted for the bill than members of his own party. I'm not getting it. Not getting it. Well, And I think when McCarthy, I think the biggest blow to the media is going to be when when McCarthy ultimately does go, because they won't be able to write the story, that McCarthy's speakership is on the brink of extinction. So the the Boehner-Ryan template certainly would have primed journalists for this question. Definitely. Right? Because that is what happened to yeah, the two previous— ten, ten years ago. To, well, yeah. to the two previous Republican speakers. For sure. So there's that, there's that component. There's this component, too, which is the bar is low, but Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden appear to be much better at this than— And I think Boehner would have been good at it, but Obama was not good at it. And Trump was not not he didn't even engage, was not even a it was hardly a participant. But what these kinds of things require and this is the crucial part that I think was that I I missed to a degree. I agree with you 100 percent. The coverage seconds up up to passage, after passage. Now what happens to McCarthy? And then when it passed by a wide margin and everybody delivered, I forget what the, I don't know if you remember what the House, the final number of R's in the House on the bill was, but it was like 140 or something. It was a ton- It was 149 Republicans voting for it and 71 against. And then and his, Times writes, this was a blow to the Republican speaker. The, that is not a blow. A blow to the Republican speaker would have been if it would have been 120. It would have been the opposite. Right. If it right. would have been 120. So basically, as long as he got a majority of the majority, I agree. That, that was okay. my measure for it. Right. Is was the, a, the old Asterisk rule. I, I totally agree with that. So I, I, I certainly agree with that part. But I think the way that I missed it initially, and I think the way that a lot of folks missed it was, the secret in these negotiations is not what's in the package. What's in the package, you know, why does, you know, Joe Manchin, king of the Senate, gets a pipeline through West Virginia. You know, there's certain things that are put in to sweeten and whatever. But 
the negotiation is around how you talk about and sell this legislation. And Joe Biden very obviously agreed not to dunk on Kevin McCarthy, right? Joe Biden very obviously agreed. I will not go out and rub your nose in it. I'm not going to go out and say, we told him we would do it because that's what Obama wouldn't give Boehner, right? What, what Obama would not give Boehner and what Boehner needed was a little help with his own conference, right? And what I think McCarthy and Biden demonstrated, both of them creatures of Congress, longtime members of Congress who climb their way up inside their respective chambers, is an understanding of how these things work. And I think they work together very well. Now, there will be. You don't see McCarthy going around saying he agreed not to negotiate and we got him to sit down and. He did. There was one little at the beginning, the messaging on it was a little dunky, like after refusing to negotiate for so long. And then that faded out and they both did that. Now, McCarthy will pay a price for this in the long, in, in over time. There's only so many of these that he can cash in before. And by the way, can I talk about the media's love affair with Thomas Massey. Oh, my gosh. House member from Kentucky, libertarian conservative. And another one, Nancy Mace. Well, Nancy Mace definitely knows how to get attention. Nancy uh, Mace has really figured out. She has a... It's not rocket science, Chris. She has a Lindsey Grammy, and maybe it's a South Carolina thing, but this capacity for like, oh, I see where the story is. I'm going to go run right over here. And she also... and. It's not rocket science to get attention, but it is hard to get attention without getting blown up in the process. And so far, she's demonstrated a pretty good capacity for picking the right, forgive me for using this word, nuanced, the way to, like, be against it but for the right reasons. She has a good permission structure. She's created a great permission structure for herself (laughs) in which to be contrarian without being contrary and all that stuff. But the Thomas Massey, like... What's up with Thomas Massey? And it's like, well, Thomas Massey is crazy. And I don't mean that in like a bad, I'm not trying to be pejorative about it. He embraces being that way. But he also is a serious, he he enjoys the work of, he's like a, he's like a better Rand Paul, I guess is the way that I would put it. Or he is what, maybe Rand Paul is a better Rand Paul now too, but he is a better, ver- he, he has learned the lessons of those folks. The only other point I wanted to make on this, and because you said, well, the media, you know, they're they're working in the under the construct of the Banner speakership and the Paul Ryan speakership. Well, McCarthy isn't those two guys. You know, I covered Boehner and Paul Ryan. Boehner absolutely hated the right wing members of his conference. And he's gone on the record since the in, long, in, right. in long interviews saying those guys are insane, you know, using expletives, cursing them out and saying, if you've he never, if you've never listened them. to John Boehner's audiobook, so, uh, yeah, 10 out of 10 would not, recommend. He did not care for like the, the animating spirits of <laughs> some of the animating personalities of the he party. He was not ready time. to kick it with Andy Biggs. No. McCarthy, on the other hand, he's hanging with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Like, and Jim Jordan. Yep. So they're very different. And then Paul Ryan is someone who never really wanted the job of speaker and whose interest was policy, not hanging out and backslapping. And McCarthy is a different figure, not a policy guy, but he led recruitment efforts for the party. And he knows all he knows all these guys personally. He does enjoy shooting the. You know? Yeah. Well, he, I, th- I think. So, it, in a lot of ways, like, and he did want this job. I think Kevin so McCarthy. So, he's better suited to this than the past two guys. And I think it is a mistake for them to use these. 
previous templates. Kevin McCarthy can get ready for a weekend of SNR. He can get ready for a, a heavy dose of the strange new respect. As oh, he will not get it. He will absolutely get. I will. I'm going to inundate you and the okay. El Retro's. We'll, uh, we'll report back next week with the series of. Hmm, Kevin McCarthy actually underestimated blah, 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 blah. Okay. And the last thing I will say about that, and this ties into this next DeSantis. SNR is definitely for our next item. DeSantis wading into debt ceiling fight. Is he getting SNR? Well, I think he's got a, he has has a comeback kid narrative coming his way. He'll get a, he'll get a like, well, DeSantis, who we said was dead, now is not exactly as dead as before. I I texted Chris this week and said that I think we're starting to see the press narrative on DeSantis move out of the, oh my gosh, he's a disaster, what a nightmare, and into like real coverage of what's he doing, what's he saying, this could be sort of interesting. So the New York Times had a piece, DeSantis wading into debt ceiling fight puts pressure on Trump. And that was interesting in that um, DeSantis was critical of this deal and Trump kept his mouth shut. Well, while after his he allies said allies were were kind of supportive of it. The first thing Trump said was that you got to have a default. <laughs> he mm-hmm. said he said in the CNN town hall he's like, you yes. know, you got to yeah, you got to have a little default. And then, and then he brrr, pulled that back. All of his allies yeah. came out praising the deal and DeSantis was against it and it did continue this pattern of of DeSantis getting to Trump's right. The the interesting thing for me about Biden and McCarthy and Trump and all of this stuff, and I think it was Josh Crosshour who made the point, but it's it's very true. The appetite among Americans for chaos is not nearly as high as it was before, right? In 2016, so there, you know, there's a it, when you're doing a debt ceiling, there's a question, and the question is, you say it's bad <laughs> if we if we hit this thing, but you know, I've never, who knows, right? So why don't we find out? And that was what Trump said in in the town hall, basically, like, ah, eh, there's they say it's yeah, so bad. Yeah, they say the sky is falling. Yeah, they say it's so bad, but whatever. And what you saw in the house. I think is fairly reflective for for a change. It was actually representative of what I think the attitudes in the country are, which is most people are at a point where they're fine to have things operate and move along. And I think that I think there's there's something there that's instructive about what what people will want in a presidential candidate. Did you want to talk about whether it's DeSantis or DeSantis? I want to talk about that Axios has done a whole a piece headline it's a double byline <laughs> it's a double byline on DeSantis or DeSantis his team won't say why won't they say Eliana why won't they tell the truth about the pronunciation of his last name i will just tell you this is clicky content i have to oh say. yeah what they're here the here the axios subheads <laughs> what they're saying flashback but then, oh, that's a new one. I haven't seen but then what's happening and why it matters. Well, let me tell you something. Why does it matter? It don't. Why does it matter? It don't. It don't matter. Wait, uh, where's why it matters? I didn't second it. paragraph. Why it matters. De- oh. DeSantis's dissonance. Oh, that's a very nice alliteration right there. On how to say his name, or is that consonants? Anyway. For years, an issue of confusion for his campaign team is a curiosity as many GOP leaders and donors wonder whether the Florida governor is ready for the scrutiny of a presidential I mean, campaign. If this sure. is as bad as, sure. as the scrutiny gets, then he's he's in pretty good shape. Sure. So is it 
so he says D Santa, and then last week we talked about the the Lady but Macbeth article about yes, his wife. His wife pushed him to say Da Santis, but Trump in his announcement in. campaign, he pronounces it. I he says I'm Ron DeSantis. So DeSantis or DeSantis? Yes, and it's D. Yes. He says DeSantis. No, he he sa- yeah he says D. But his wife his wanted wife to be duh. duh. Which one is more Italian? Which one is more authentic to? I read a great piece. I should have included it. Oh, D. Yeah, because I read a great piece about the his his ancestral homeland in I think Calabria. I forget where, where in Italy, but all of his great grandparents were all from the same place in Italy, and like tracing that back and how proud they were there that they had a person a a, a favorite son who was doing that. So I think it's DeSantis, right? I don't know. Whatever he wants it to I, be. Chris, let me get out my bucket to fill it. I could care less. Oh, there you go. I could care less. Hit the ah! buzzer. Well, I, I'm just glad Axios had two reporters on the case to ah! to explore. What do we got now? Oh, here? this was fascinating to me. You will hate it. Should I keep my bucket out? Keep your bucket out. DeSantis's plan to take down Trump involves a right-wing satire site. This is Aswin Subasang and Adam Ronsley at the Rolling Stone talking about the controversy around the Babylon Bee. Okay. And so the deal is that a MAGA, mega, mega, super mega, 10,000X, QAnon adjacent, whatever dude on Twitter who was like the senior vice president or <laughs> whatever of, of, of dank memes for the Babylon Bee posted an attack on DeSantis. He got fired. It turned into a very public spat between the editor, the CEO and the editor of the Babylon Bee uh, over whether, and, and then came the allegation from trump Afghanistan that DeSantis had hot, was that, that the Babylon Bee was on the payroll of Ron DeSantis. Oh my gosh. Meatball Ron is there in the pocket of Big Meatball and that blah, 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 blah. And on the one hand, you want to say, are you people for real? Is what you want to say. And I do think, by the way, that this speaks to a liability for DeSantis, which is he is way too online. I, yes. He is way too online. And People. it's a lot. And his communications, former communications director and all this stuff, there's a thirstiness that is distorted. And I think the tw- the Twitter launch was, was overstated in how bad it was for him. But it was reflective of an unforced error created by being too thirsty for clicks. Okay. What's next? Oh, Facebook. That's what's next. California has a has legislation that's putting forward on compelling social media platforms to pay news companies. This is a... It's similar to the, what the federal legislation was going to be. Yes. And it's the California version of the Journalism Preservation Act. And what Facebook says is we will be forced to remove news from Facebook and Instagram rather than pay into a slush fund that primarily benefits big out-of-state media companies under the guise of aiding California publishers. And one of the things that's going on right now on all of this stuff, state, federal preemption, right, is a thing. And as states, the longer that the federal government goes with, and the same is true of privacy, the longer the federal government goes without dealing with this and Congress cannot 
address these considerations and questions, the more you will get a patchwork of state rules and the more that it will become dysfunctional and it will break down what needs to happen in the news business, which is we got to get through this period, not squat in this period, period. Should we do Tara Reid? Here we are. For anyone who didn't think it was clear that this woman was a crank... Well, this is the Joe jo Biden. This is the woman who I was going to get oh, there. Oh, sorry. I need, I need right. my buzzer. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> the woman who accused Joe Biden of sexual assault. She was his aide in the Senate ages ago. She accused him during the 20, 20, not 20 campaign. So it must yeah. have happened in 2019. Of course, got very little news coverage. Well, um, she got some news coverage. She got some news coverage. But Fox News was interested, yes. and um, there was a, and then th- this was one that but was she. She was obviously did not have too many marbles or shovels. There were there was a lot of hand wringing surrounding Tara Reid's allegations, and should we cover it? Shouldn't we cover it? What's it like? Don't we believe women? We talked about it on this very podcast about. Gee, geez, you know, what's the right thing to do? You have an accuser. Issue. And you remember the popular the popular modifier during the Me Too moment was credible, right? A credible allegation. And then is Tara Reid credible? I don't know. And then, of course, the right-wing media critics said, the reason you're not covering Tara Reid's allegations the way that you covered the allegations against Donald Trump is political bias. And it... Well... It was a little rich, given the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh that were covered widely that were yes. clearly not credible. Yes. So, of course, you know, there were double standards. Anyhow, she has announced she's moving to Russia because she fears for her personal safety. And it's like, you know, lady, no one even remembers who you are. We had to re-explain who you are on this podcast because nobody would have remembered. So the New York Times writes that Ms. Reed told Sputnik in a news conference where you go. that while her, quote, dream is to live in both the United States and Russia, she might reside only in Russia because that is where she feels, quote, surrounded by protection and safety. All right. Uh, RFK Jr. running mate possibility? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see what happens for her in the future. We'll, we'll put, um, we'll put that in the future slide. She file. can really stick it to, to Joe Biden. <laughs> that's right. We'll um, see. I loved this next piece because, to me, it, it did expose... It, just like Pride Month becoming a corporate boondoggle, what a boondoggle so much of this green energy stuff is. So the Washington Post headline was burning trash for the planet, question mark. What? Climate cash sets off branding frenzy. Oh, my and gosh. It is about how all of this federal money the Biden administration is giving away for green energy products has led to polluters who burn trash working to characterize what they're doing as climate friendly. So the Post writes, the trash burning industry was eager to show it is not a polluting relic, but a pioneering clean tech sector worthy of millions of dollars in new federal subsidies. But its invitation to the Environmental Protection Agency to visit a Michigan waste to energy facility needed to be timed right. I don't think we want EPA in the plant while we are setting off explosives in the boiler, said a September email exchange between executives at Covanta Energy regarding the facility, which was about to be to go through the messy maintenance procedure. The air will be filled with ash dust and it may not have great opt- optics. As the Biden administration allocates billions of dollars in new climate subsidies, environmentally challenged industries are sharpening their green pitches. I loved this because, look, the bottom line is 
the dollar. And just like with Pride, why why all these companies are doing it. And I think the green stuff is becoming the same. I th- oh, I think, what do they call it? Okay. Green, greenwashing? Yes. Is your, is your new golf shirt carbon neutral? Do you buy carbon offsets yeah. for your knockoff handbags? The, the, that part and, and, you know, we remember Al Gore and the carbon credit at, at the, in the, in the, in the beginnings of this 15 years ago, 20 years ago, like, oh, I fly around the world on a private jet, but don't worry about it. I buy carbon offsets and they planted nine trees in exchange for this flight. But what I find interesting here is uh, here's the key graph. It all hinges on regulators embracing the industry's accounting methods for its carbon footprint. And it suggests that there is scandal here from the industry telling EPA officials like, hey, wait a minute, when you're scoring this stuff, here's how you should look at it. Now, obviously, they're going to want you to look at it in the light most favorable to them. But I don't think this this is not exactly like nuclear power. But I do think that the trash to energy, the, the question of trash to energy is one that certainly environmentalists should be open to, not only because it's not landfilled, but also because it is a source of energy. You can burn trash to make energy. Can it be made better? Can it be whatever? I don't know. But the the way that this is treated like it's a scam, I think is maybe unfair. It's I agree with that. And every industry is doing it. Yeah. Every industry. Yeah. The, there's some waste that is better incinerated than others, and I will not get into all of that right now, but this has been a hot-button issue for a long time. What do we have next, Chris? Los White Supremacistas. Oh, right. Yes. Ridiculous Atlantic article, the headline of which is Latinos can be white supremacists. And before the show started- But only white Latinos. I said, I said, I don't care about this at all. And then they told us- And um, I said, who, who put this in? Yes. And it was <laughs> you. You were like the Spider-Man, it was like the Spider-Man meme. Yes. So, stupid, stupid article. <laughs> and- <laughs> Oh, we can just read from it. A gunman, uh, this is Adam Sewer. 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 A gunman turned a Dallas mall into an abattoir earlier this month, and parts of the American right reacted in disbelief. Not at the six mass shooting in a public place this year. By now, these events have become numbingly routine. But the suspect identified might have been motivated by white supremacist supremacist ideology. Why? Because the suspect was identified as one Mauricio Garcia. Goes on from there. Did you see the guy, the, the truck that had the swastika flag in it? No. My also like you reading that. My eyes are like. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a, a a guy, and I forget what his ethnicity was, but drove a had, was trying to bomb something or ram something. He drove into the park outside the White House. Yeah, was it was trying to crash into the White House compound, and he had a. Uh, the, he had a Nazi flag in the vehicle. And so, as we've talked about many times before, when these tragedies occur, these, these slaughters occur, the first question is, whose team, right? Who is, who is it? And then in this case, it was like, Nazi flag. And the left was like, aha, we got it. It's one of theirs. And then it was like, what's the guy's name? And it's like, oh, hold on. There, we, we were hoping for Richard Mueller. And we got, and I, Colin, I don't know if you have the name or, or the name can be found, but it was a, it was a not typical Northern or Western European name, thereby complicating the narrative. And some, somebody even wrote a piece. <laughs> so, you know, it was maybe this guy needs a refresher on world history here. 
two two minutes Side. too long. Okay, Colin will not try. He's going to make me try. Sai Varesh. I'm not going to go on the last one. But anyway, not Richard Mueller. And so that's the politicization of tragedy. There you go. Do we need to do this rock singer? Oh, I only want to include, this could be in our style section, but okay. I'm only going but to. But one in our style section is so much better. I, I, I only in, in, include this. This is a Fox News Fox News story. Rock singer curses out DeSantis supporters during show. You're blanking dead to me. They said effing dead to me. Paramore lead singer Haley Williams savaged her political opponents during a performance over the weekend telling any potential Ron DeSantis voters in the crowd, you're effing dead to me. Come on. No one's heard of this person in turn. Has anyone? Is this a famous? But we get this is a famous person. Yes. Oh, so we're getting a maybe we're getting a millennial, zennial split here. Haley Williams. Oh yeah. Okay, of Paramore. Mm-hmm. What kind of music? Pop punk. Pop punk. Okay. Were you? Whoa. Canoe Colin. Yeah. Colin. Jeez. Where, where are you paddling these yeah. days, Colin? You're over there. When you coming back from an ayahuasca trip, you load it <laughs> in and 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 bring you back to reality. Do you think many of her listeners are Ron DeSantis fans? Okay, so probably it's safe to say that not a big overlap here. So what's the game? What's the scam here? Scam here is she is not having any effect on anything except for this. If you pluck her out of something foolish she said at a concert and pluck her out, you can bring it over to generate outrage on the right, where you can be like, look at what these liberal, the, why don't you shut up and sing, Missy? You can try to get a Dixie chick. I I don't totally agree with that. It's, okay. It's, sure, okay, her, her it, it's sort of like Bud Light catering to his audience by, like, putting, you know, grunting football people. But this is like a more in-your-face, you know, insult to people who don't, agree with you it's like many people like, well, jerky the, but th- but this is but this is also like people took to twitter to say bad things about something yes. this is not yeah, a con- of course it doesn't really matter at right. the same time i'm now glad i know who this person is and will not your pop if you decide to go on yes a, if, if you decide yes. to go to a rave with colin yes that i'm you happy will, for the awareness you'll know not to go to a Haley. Yeah, so yes i'm happy for news, the awareness. news you can use it is news i can use all right i have a right. kid now you never know. That brings us to our style section. Heck yeah. And the Wall Street Journal reporting that Aloe Yoga <laughs> is beating Lululemon at its own game. Yes. Love this. Okay. Do you own any Aloe Yoga? I don't own any Aloe Yoga, I don't think, because I, I, I do have opinions on this. Okay, so... <laughs> This piece, the Wall Street Journal Journal writes, Harris, and, and I think there's an aloe yoga going up in Georgetown right now. Harris, the co-founder Colin, where, where and CEO, are you on this one? <laughs> is not a cookie-cutter executive. No. When asked how many employees the company has, he responded, well, that's a great question. I don't know. Thousands. But I don't know. Those metrics, a normal CEO would be boom, boom, boom on those things. But for me, it's always been more about the feeling, the good that we can do around the world. Okay, so yes, it does sound like they might be beating Lululemon at their own <laughs> what, but- ridiculous game. While the scale of privately owned aloe is still smaller than publicly traded 
Behemoths, Nike, and Lululemon, the company is making swift gains with 43 stores and, according to Harris, over $1 billion in sales in 2022. It's made valuable inroads among the discerning Gen Z and Alpha customers. Wait, what's Alpha? Is that you, intern? What are you? You're Z. Okay. Alpha. Okay. Okay, so it says between oh, we're starting over. We're going all the way back to A. To 2022, the business nearly dum- doubled. Lululemon's revenue reached 8.1 billion in 2022, up 32% from the year before. And Nike is in another league with 46.7 billion in revenue in 2022. Still, Allo has an intangible it factor at the moment. My hot take is. Is this, Amazon. Is this how you dress? When oh, you go- yes. Chris is showing me a picture of a woman wearing a neon. It's a Bieber. Sh- neon shorts and a bikini top with a white, like, blouse over it. It's something. Okay. My hot take is all these people are getting ripped off and that Amazon. Okay. Amazon is where the workout gear is at. I wore these Lululemon leggings all through my pregnancy. I had like six pairs of them, 90 some dollars for each pair, absurd. And they're all very worn now. I did an Amazon refresh, Mm -hmm. like 20 some dollars a pair. For these? They are just as good. And just as good quality. Yes. I, I am I have come just he- as good. I have come here and I actually shared this article because I want to credit Rory Satran. Sorry for butchering your last name, Ms. Satran, but for the good writing and the good piece that made it accessible even to me, who does not know what any of these things are. Headline, Aloe Yoga is beating Lululemon in its own game. Subhead, models, pop superstars, and all-star athletes wear its sleek workout clothes, paying homage in sanctuaries, how the Aloe faithful took on Nike and Lululemon. Listen to, just for anybody who wants to be a good writer, here's how you do an anecdotal lead for a feature story. When our children dress up as, quote, people from 2023, 10 years from now on Halloween, they will wear shiny beige aloe yoga leggings and sports bras with puffy white socks, white sneakers, and gold chain necklaces. They will clutch gigantic water bottles, iPhones, and Tesla key fobs. They will look essentially like any paparazzi photo from this year of Haley Bieber on her way to a hot Pilates class in Los Angeles. Exactly how the Aloe Yoga matching workout set became the definitive look of our time is a business story, a marketing story, a pandemic story, and a celebrity story all wrapped up in one, alongside a healthy dose of happenstance. Right time, right place, right lycra. Rory Satran, that is packed with detail. It's interesting. It's got great tone. It's got great pacing, great energy. 10 out of 10 lead, even made this old bear interested in what was going on in the world of sweatpants. Okay, and there's pictures in the article. The 80,000-square-foot headquarters, which houses cold plunge pools, a podcast studio, cryo chambers, and more, is a testament to the brand's vision. Cryo chamber. When are we going to get a wretch's cryo chamber? I'm ready. (laughs) I'm ready for partial hibernation. To our obsessions of the week. Before we break down the stories, we can't get out of our heads. I think this might be my first Washington Post obsession piece. Positive obsession piece, yes. yes. And it was, for mega-rich heirs, the anxieties that drive succession are all too real. And this was about the 
trials and travails of wealthy heirs and heiresses that I know most people roll their eyes, but don't can't say it like empathized. But did you it wa- was very interesting. Did you watch Succession? Yes, I watched it, Oof. and I thought it was super interesting in that. Oh, you are doing monochrome again. Yes, I'm in monochrome. You are today. in. You are yeah. in. What do we call it? Quiet luxury. Quiet affluence. Is that what's the term? Is I don't think any monochrome is just quiet luxury. I think there's a quiet luxury about you today, but but I interrupt. <laughs> okay, so. The piece says, Paul Hokemeyer, a family therapist who also treats ultra-rich people, I just love that phrase, said he recognized how the second generation of an extremely wealthy family can become haunted by their inheritance rather than be empowered by it. They're constantly wondering if people like them like them for who they are at their core or for the trappings of wealth that adorn their lives, he said in an email, commenting on wealth's remarkable ability to isolate a person from those around them. They feel guilty for having so much of what the world idolizes and while at the same time feeling so flawed, inadequate, and unhappy, as well as seeding self-doubt and isolation, material wealth and the prospect of its inheritance infect almost every relationship in succession. Wealth is power, Hokemeyer said, adding that when there is a wealth imbalance in relationships, there is inherent, an inherent power imbalance, too. Something those who have inherited family money say re- reflects their own experiences. And the part of that was interesting was about the inheritance aspect, because I don't think this happens if you, like, make your own money. No. But I think there is an aspect to feeling that, like, you can't surpass the achievements of your parents and that... And like a questioning of what have you ever done if you gain admission to X school, if you get X job, that you haven't achieved any of those things. And there is like an emptiness and isolation to it that I think would be kind of miserable. Well, you know, families that deal well with inherited wealth versus families that do not, you you know, I'm sure like me, many sad stories about people who were really damaged by inherited wealth and how it robbed them of their ambition, led them into dark places of addiction because they did not have to get real, right? And I think the job, in when you see families, so like let, let's take the Bushes, multi-generation, massive wealth, early on, centuries now of being in prominent positions, you know, going back to before J.D. Rockefeller, and how do and and their batting average is only okay, is only okay, right? But have managed to produce multiple generations of people with ambition, and and do all of those things. The amount of parenting that it takes, and rectitude, and leaning on an old order that's required. You know, this is, I think. The lesson of the WASP elite in America was like, you gotta go hard, <laughs> right? You gotta send them to schools where they're tough on them. You've got to hold them to high standards. You've got to push. But then, of course, you can push them the other way, right? You can push them into where they're alienated from their families, where they are resentful, where, and some of that. And I, can I say one thing about succession? Yes. No one watched succession. I saw the viewership numbers for succession. And it was like, what was it, 3 million people? 2.9. 2.9 million people, which is for a regular Sunday night football game on television, like 
a billionth of a, and I don't know why it is that I'm this way, but whenever there's a show that people are like, oh, you have to watch X, my brain immediately is like, I will never watch that. I will now never, ever watch that. And because this was this this show was about the Murdochs, and because I had worked for Fox, we were like, oh, did you see? You must be watching. And it's like, no. And also, by the way, and I'll tell you this right now, Internet, I've never seen Titanic. Come at me. I will never see Titanic. And the more you tell me to do it, the less likely I am to see it. That's like me and Dave Matthews Band. Well, that's a more complicated story. <laughs> <laughs> that Col- we'll let Colin weigh in on that no, for his no, no, spin-off no. music pod about music to canoe by. I don't know what the I don't know what the the correct answer is. I was traumatized by Dave Matthews rising to success right as I was going to college and he was very popular in the Virginia music college music scene. It's uh, it's something. Chris? Yes. Oh, now obsession. it's now I go. That's how it works. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Well, my obsession is a negative obsession. Okay. Baratunde Thurston, who gets 12 points on my all-name meter. This is, a good name. This is, I'm in love with that name. Not in love with the piece that he wrote for Puck, in which his attack on Tim Scott was so mean, so cynical, so just rotten, from beginning to end. Headline, Tim Scott's audience of one, a donor-class sensation. Scott perpetuates a fantasy about American self-reliance that tells you everything about his candidacies. And I do not wish to vituperate Mr. Thurston's article at extraordinary length, but I will just say, this piece captures two important threads in coverage to watch going forward. Number one, from the left. Everyone is, you think Trump was bad. Actually, here's why Tim Scott is worse than Donald Trump. Actually, here's why everyone is worse than Donald Trump. Actually, 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 right? And the game is, for people writing from the left, the Republicans who are the most normal. Tim Scott is the most normal, I so far that I can I can discern of like a mainstream normal Republican kind of candidate. He has an unusual biography for the Republican Party, but he's pretty mainstream in his thinking and opinions, as far as I can tell. And to say, well, he's actually worse than Trump or he's actually worse than Ron DeSantis. He's worse than all those things. How about to say he relies on the coded notion of personal responsibility? Well, this is this is the this is the, the 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 second part. And the the second part is, why is he even running? Why is he even running? Because he can't win and everybody knows he can't win. And this goes to Mike Pence. This goes to Chris Christie. This goes to Tim Scott. This goes to, what's her name, former governor of South Carolina? Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley. This goes to whomever. Huh, why are they even running? There's no lane for them. And I have to say, we don't know. And this is my real obsession here, which is, is it, is Donald Trump the front runner for the Republican nomination? Sure. He's more likely than anybody else running to be the Republican nominee in 2024. But we don't know how and in which ways this will all play out. We do not know what's coming. We do not know how this is going to be. And it's so early in the process. Let him run, right? Let him run and find out. Maybe Mike Pence will turn out to be an absolute sensation, right? Maybe he will get out to Iowa and they're just going it'll, to—it'll make their love for Rick Santorum look cold and, cold and gray. 
who knows? Let them run out the process and the heaping of scorn and disdain on people who are running for president. I would just say to Mr. Thurston, take people at their word a little bit, right? Maybe I, 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 I believe that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. means the things that he's saying, right? I believe that he does. I believe Marianne Williamson believes the things that she's saying. And until they prove me otherwise, I'll, t- I'll take them at their word that they're running for president for the reasons that they state that they're running for president. Not as spoilers, not to try to hurt Joe Biden, not as a buck-raking scheme. I'm open to the possibilities, but I'll take people at their word. It's so early in this process. My gosh, let it run out. We don't know anything yet because the persuadable voters in this race have not even begun to really consider their options. So relax. Chris. Ma'am. That brings us to my favorite time of the week. Oh, yes. Which is reader mail. And our first letter is from Joseph in Oak Island, North Carolina, who writes, Greetings. Do you consider books media? If so, what are your top 10 book picks for becoming a better informed and knowledgeable citizen slash voter? Should we come back with some picks? So or do you have them off the top of your head? Are we looking for books about journalism and how, like, in in that space? I think we should do journalism picks and come back with them. Fiction or nonfiction? It doesn't matter. He Anything. didn't specify. So books about journalism, about becoming. Let's, for, let's make a list. Okay. Well, I would invite you, Internet. And we'll put it in the newsletter. I would invite you, Internet, to send in your submissions for what's a book now, there's one that came out. It was a national bestseller. It came out last year. I can't remember. Oh, it was Broken News by Chris Steyerwalt <laughs> that some people are saying is maybe the best, maybe the best of all of these such books. But okay, yes. so Joseph, we want to come back to you, and we should, put, we should put the list in our newsletter next week. And you should, people should email us. Yes. Or should they email us with their suggestions? At wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. Dot com. So like Hunter S. Thompson, like there's a lot of lot of ways you could go with Oh, this. I have ideas. Oh, I bet you do. And then we also have a letter from Mike in the Northern Bay area in California who writes, Chris and Eliana, not sure if you are fans of Succession yeah. on Max, a.k.a. HBO Max, but I was wondering what you thought about Tom's assessment of his role in not giving his audience diet advice and giving them the red meat they crave. Sorry, but no style advice or sartorial questions. Okay, Mike, we will give you a pass, Who, even though you are not asking us for... Who's Tom? Tom is a character Oh my gosh, show. you really don't know anything. I really do not. Mike, I will answer your question since I watch. I think, you know, it's a, it's a silly assessment with a kernel of truth in it, in that you have to make the news entertaining a bit or, or nobody's going to watch. But he is spoofing, of course, what the, in that episode they are drawing a parallel to what happened at Fox News after the election where at Fox News we know from all of the memos and emails that came out they were saying we have to respect the audience, we have to respect the audience. And so, but what he was saying, when he's saying we have to give them the red meat, you know, it's like letting the audience lead you as opposed to leading the audience with the facts. That's how I read that episode, which I think was obviously modeled on, you know, it's their take on what happened at Fox News after the election and obviously not a model for 
excellent newscasting. Yeah, it's a balance. I mean, you have to be responsive to your audience. But I've said it many times, and I'll say it again. The theologian said that the truth without love becomes too hard and that love without the truth becomes too soft. So what we have to do is tell the truth in with love. And you have to have love for your audience and meet them where they are as best you can, but you have to tell them the truth. And people, it, many of these are prudential choices. Many of these are, you have to make decisions about how to talk about it. The the recent attacks on Kaylee, what's her, McEnany? Mm-hmm. McEnany, Kaylee M. The attacks on her for being disloyal to Trump and attacking and the, the piling on of her and all that stuff in the back and forth just goes to show Audience capture is real. It is a problem, and it can make it very hard to do your job. So you got to, like, find a way to have one toe in there and, and be responsive but not be addicted. Chris, yes. that brings us to your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice, but you are going to lead by example. I struggled with this. I will tell you. So the publisher of the New York Times earlier this month published a long, a very long piece in the Columbia Journalism Review. This is Pinch Sulzberger, A.G. Sulzberger, and wrote this lengthy piece, headline, Journalism's Essential Value, subhead the debate around, quote, objectivity, if that's even the right word anymore has become among the most contested in journalism, is how the Columbia Journalism Review starts it out. And I debated this because a lot of it is, of course, self-serving, flapdoodle, and that stuff. But And I can already tell this is way too long. Do they not have editors over there? Way too long. I mean, way too long. And self-indulgent and all that stuff. And I didn't want to give give him too much credit, but he deserves a favorite. Because he did say something important. He just wound it up in a lot of other he hit he hid, but he still said. And here's the here's the passage I, I will share with you. American journalism faces a confluence of challenges that present the most profound threat to the free press in more than a century. News organizations are shrinking and dying under sustained financial duress. Attacks on journalists are surging. Press freedoms are under intensifying pressure. And with the broader information ecosystem overrun by misinformation, conspiracy theories, propaganda, and clickbait, public trust in journalism has fallen to historical lows. That's not the only reason why it's fallen to historical lows. There is no clear path through this gantlet, but there will be no worthwhile future for journalism if our profession abandons the core value that makes our work essential to democratic society, the value that answers the question of why we're deserving of the public trust and the special protections afforded the free press. That value is journalistic independence. And I say preach, right? I say preach. And it's hard to do. And as we were just saying, an answer to Mike, it's very hard. It's very hard to plot your course through, but you have to reach for it. You have to aspire for it. I am a great believer in aspirational fairness is a good objective. Pure objectivity is not a thing that occurs. Aspirational fairness is something that you can try for. You'll still miss the mark, but it's a good thing to try for. And so kudos to Sulzberger for saying something that if you think about it, a couple of years ago would have landed very differently in a New York Times newsroom that was in those days hounding Barry Weiss out of the out of the building. My favorite item is way different. 
but I knew I had to read it when I saw this headline. It's millionaire versus billionaire in the battle of the Soho, Soho pergola. The rooftop of a historic building is the focus of a renovation skirmish between Federico Pignatelli, a financier, and Ray Dalio, the hedge fund mogul. And the picture is this Italian guy um, sitting in an all-marble bathroom with some Fat. shattered glass like, at his feet. And the article does not disappoint. It is about this insanely petty dispute. The look on this man's face. Guys. I can't, can't recommend the enough the look of disdain filed. on this gentleman's face. And, and this Pignatelli guy says, text to Dalio, I tried warning you that things were worsening because of the construction, he texted Mr. Dalio, and I had no choice left then to sue. Pignatelli says cracks have formed in the wooden beams in his apartment. He continued, a mirror literally exploded in my bathroom because of the structural shift. And if my daughter or I would have been there, we would have been severely injured or even killed. Mr. Dalio replied in a text message shared by Mr. Pignatelli that he had offered to hire a third party inspector to assess the structure, but that he no longer believed the neighbors could resolve the discord themselves. My sincere desire was to be generous with you. The text from Mr. Dalio read, it's clear that what you and I think is reasonable is irreconcilable so those in the legal system will be the judges and this is all about some construction on I the really like I gotta by say Dalio's like son and his his daughter-in-law I really like this Pignatelli or at least yes, the, the, as he's depicted great. I'm Italian Ray's Italian we're neighbors yes it's great <laughs> we should be respecting each other and helping each other but he's incredibly arrogant oh just mm-hmm. you enjoy please to enjoy great great pick well, that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Get it. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review stars. at a minimum. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.